0: Meet him tonight, town meeting tonight from town hall New York. Just as sure as you live the people of this country in November 1936, by the most overwhelming vote that has ever been cast in American history, gonna march to the polls and enthusiastically send Franklin D. Roosevelt right back to the this
1: critical point in our nation's history. It should seem fitting that business and government should bear in mind the warning which Abraham Lincoln gave to the two factions into which this country was dividing at the time of his first inaugural address. I am loath to clothe. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies by that. Now is a fourth term necessary because we have a war to win and a peace to make. Do not insult the intelligence of 130 million American people by suggesting that in this great nation one man has become indispensable.
2: That is why on November 7th they will continue at the helm. The pilot led us through the darkness of the depression the Commander-in-Chief who is bringing us to victory on the battlefield, Franklin D.
3: Roosevelt. I'll
4: Town Hall and the American Broadcasting Company present a town meeting special, Politics USA, narrated by Will Rogers, Jr., For more than 20 years, America's town meeting has provided a national platform for the debate of the political issues and personalities which have highlighted the five presidential elections during town meetings two decades on the air. Tonight on this special documentary broadcast, you will hear again the voices of many who have since passed from our political scene. You will hear again the sharp debate over national controversies which have held the center of attention in campaigns from the early years of the New Deal to the new, present Eisenhower era. The next hour will bring you the voices of President Eisenhower, Franklin Roosevelt, Wendell Wilkie, Harold Ickes, Hugh Johnson, Robert A. Taft, Albin W. Barkley, Norman Thomas, Adlai Stevenson, and many others. And recorded debates from town meetings since May 1935. This is Politics USA. As narrator on this occasion, we welcome to town meeting the well-known actor, Will Rogers Jr., Mr. Rogers. Good evening, friends. My father
5: once said, Politics is the best show in America.
2: The Democrats are the middle of the road party. The Republicans are the straddle of the road party. So I hereby nominate Mr. Henry Ford for president and christen the party the All Over the Road Party.
5: Politics is one thing all of us can do something about. At least we can talk about it, and we've been talking about it ever since this republic was born. Tonight you're going to hear about some political issues long since forgotten in our concern over more immediate problems. We might call this town meeting sort of a refresher course in American politics.
1: So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear
0: is fear itself. Nameless,
1: unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance.
5: When town meeting first went on the air 21 years ago, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was completing his first term in the presidency.
1: I am fighting as I always have fought. For the rights of the little man as well as the big man. For the weak as well as the strong. For those who are helpless as well as those who can help
2: themselves.
5: A political philosophy called the New Deal, born in the dark days of depression, raised heated controversies over basic issues of government, some of which still are debated today. In 1935, all America was concerned with recovery, and town meeting found much grist for the mills of debate.
0: Go back to 28. Go back to 32. Are you willing to go back to those glorious days when 15 million people Walked the streets and highways of America begging for bread and business. That great business that they said you had to let alone, which neither Harding, Coolidge, nor Hoover had ever lifted one finger to control the (laughs) press. Give an absolutely free reign in the saddle, holding the bitterness. Ah, they talk about business going to the band. There was no business in 1932. Of course, they were not uh, making money then, some of them. There wasn't any to make. You can't sell goods with 15 million people wholly and completely out of funds to buy, with 30 million farmers getting 5 cents for their cotton and 10 cents for their corn when they didn't burn it up and 25 cents for their wheat and wearing clothes instead of those manufactured in New York, taking the old sacks, fertilizer sacks and washing them out and putting them on the children that went to school. The few days they were left to go to school in those good old glorious days when business was let alone. After those glorious days, I had an indictment drawn up here to show you just what did happen from those old days when business was let alone. (laughs) But I don't have to remind you of it. Your memories are not that short. The American people have not forgotten, and the American people will not forget in November 1936. Just as sure as you live, the people of this country in November 1936, by the most overwhelming vote that has ever been cast in American history, he's going to march to the polls and enthusiastically send Franklin D. Roosevelt right back to the White House.
5: Those were the words of Alabama Senator Hugo L. Black, speaking in town meeting in December 1935. With a different view was Merwin K. Hart, at that time, president of the New York State Economic Council.
1: The next time I am offered the opportunity to debate with Senator Black, I hope that you will fix two hours in the period. <laughs> because I can see that Senator Black needs to learn something about the private enterprise
6: of this country, something he does not know. <laughs> As I've listened to these furious attacks on business at the hands of Senator Black,
1: I am amazed. Now the Senator has said that when he was here in New York several years ago, he saw bread lines. And
7: now he says you don't see them anymore. Well, what's happened? Why these poor, unemployed people have been taken from one place
1: and they've been put down in another place.
3: And they're there just the same.
1: And here we have the phenomena after all these wonderful things that Senator Black says that he and the administration have
6: been doing down in Washington for these unemployed, we have the remarkable situation that we've got almost as many unemployed today as we had then. Right. And the peak of the cost,
5: the peak of the cost has been reached and passed. Destined to become one of the most influential and popular figures in the Democratic Party and eventually attain the vice presidency, Senator Albin Barkley of Kentucky told town meeting listeners,
1: I challenge those who complain that we have robbed the people of their liberty to point to a single example not based on public welfare. I challenge those who weep over the destruction of the state and the demise of the Constitution to indicate where we have stabbed it and where it is buried. We have not destroyed the Constitution. We are not destroying the Constitution. But if the time ever comes when it shall be preserved only by assigning it to a shelf. In some museum, where it may be looked at but never used, then the people themselves will destroy it and make another in its place.
5: Senator Barclay was answered by former Secretary of the Treasury, Ogden L. Mills.
1: American opinion today is confused and divided, both as to the causes of the Depression and the remedies for our present troubles. There are those who hold that our economic system is fundamentally defective, that its innate weaknesses cause the depression, and that it has neither the vitality nor the adaptability to generate recovery from within. They would supplant it with another system, under which an all-powerful central government is to regulate and direct all phases of our economic life down to the smallest detail. Recovery is not to come from within. It is to be imposed from without. The road to recovery, my friends, lies straight before us. All that keeps us from it is an
2: administration that has not the capacity and perhaps
1: not even the desire to find it.
5: Still another political philosophy was offered by Norman Thomas, six-times presidential candidate on the socialist ticket.
1: Now, when I offer socialism as a way out for America, I'm not saying that it is the way that which America is most likely to thrive. I am simply saying that it is the only desirable way out and that it is a possible way out, not blocked by any insurmountable barriers in the economic situation or in the psychology of America herself.
5: Mr. Thomas, together with the Republican Party's Alf Landon, sharply attacked the Roosevelt administration in the campaign of 1936, but FDR won a landslide victory. Along about this time came one of the hottest political issues of the entire Roosevelt era, the plan to enlarge the Supreme Court. Congressman Maury Maverick of Texas.
1: Why should a change be made in the high court? The Supreme Court has knocked out almost everything the mass of the people want and must have if we are to survive as a democracy. If a majority of the court maintain their present views, not only will they destroy all statutes relating to collective bargaining, but will even make it impossible for the national government to continue anything like the WPA or to intelligently aid the victims of floods and droughts. This situation is intolerable.
5: Senator Hugo Black, himself a few months later to be appointed to the high court, spoke in favor of the ill-fated proposal.
1: This power to determine the number of federal judges, which is a part of the Constitution itself, is the one single power which President Roosevelt has recently asked the Congress to use in order to serve the public good. Those who attack the President of the United States for suggesting the use of this power given by the Constitution, or thereby attacking the wisdom, the integrity, or the patriotism of our founding
5: fathers who established the Constitution itself. We had plenty of debatable issues on the domestic scene in those days, but meanwhile, some 3,000 miles away, war had broken out in Europe.
0: America hates war. America America hopes for peace. Therefore, America actively engages in the search for peace.
5: But to most people, the ocean seemed mighty wide, and the battles were far away. Some folks were more troubled about the possible threats of the New Deal to our traditional American freedoms. A staunch defender of the administration was its Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ickes, who matched wits with former NRA administrator, General Hugh Johnson. General
2: Johnson thinks that I am eccentric in my political and social theories, and I am positive that he is. (laughs) Thus far, we are in agreement. I am fond of old iron
3: pants.
2: (laughs) I fancy the vigor of his expressions and relish the savor of his phrases i like him particularly because although he's a hard fighter always charging bravely although sometimes simultaneously in all directions (laughs) he is a fair one he does not hit below the belt he can be i am bound to say generous in his attitude even if he is cockeyed as to many of his ideas The dictatorship that General Johnson bemoans consists of policies and actions of a government that is personally distasteful to him, although in both expression and exercise such actions come well within our constitutional power. He is also strong for efficiency, and he delights in knowledge of and comradeship with competent people. It will appear that General Johnson may not be willing to adjourn politics during a time of national crisis but he boldly advocates that we adjourn democracy. I should like to conclude with these words of Jefferson. Our difficulties are indeed great, if we consider ourselves alone. But when viewed in comparison with those of Europe, they are the joys of paradise. Thank you.
5: So the issue was joined.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, and my dear Mr. Secretary... (laughs) To defend this thing, we must know what it is and what threatens it. What is democracy? I fear that Harold thinks democracy is anything Tommy Corcoran says it is. (laughs) How is our system threatened? Well, in the first place, democracy depends absolutely on the consent of the governed. The Declaration of Independence said that governments are justified only to secure to the people life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and that when they fail in that, they are through. There are more ways than one to lose liberty and happiness. Massive public debts, unbearable taxes, unemployment of millions, inability of farmers and businessmen to make decent living, do of themselves destroy both liberty and happiness. These conditions come from unconscionable extravagance and callous carelessness, in laying merciless tax burdens. Debt and taxes interfere with human enterprise, employment and prosperity, and that certainly reduces both liberty and happiness. I shall not take time to answer Mr. Ecke. I submit that he didn't say anything. I think one of the greatest dangers to democracy of all, short of war itself, is the granting of temporary, extraordinary powers inconsistent with democracy to permanent bureaus of government? For you can write it in your book that if enough of these powers are granted to permanent departments of government, we may have Mr. Roosevelt and my gracious opponent in office from now on till death do us part.
5: Then the old curmudgeon and General Johnson gathered around the mic for audience questions. Moderator George Denny had his hands full.
7: Has the president the right to choose his advisors from among businessmen as he has from among left-wing liberals who were who are never elected to office either?
2: Hasn't the president the right to select his uh, leaders from businessmen as well as left-wing advisors, or was that the context? I don't like a question that states the case. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I'll
2: answer. I'll answer any frank and honest question, but not a loaded one. Does the general honestly believe that the present administration is responsible for the number of
8: unemployed? Does the general
2: honestly believe that the present administration is responsible for the large number of unemployed?
1: Certainly not.
0: (laughs) Secretary, will not our national unity be augmented
2: by a statement from our president that for a third term he will not choose to run? I'm not discussing politics tonight. Well, now, that's me. on the third uh, General Johnson, don't you think it's better for those among us who work to pay a little bit out of our salaries for those people who are
5: not working and to keep them off the breadline to help them arouse the country? The
8: question is, don't
1: I think it's better for people to pay a little bit out of their salaries if they have them to help people who are on the breadline? <coughs> of course it is. But I'll say to you, there's a limit beyond which you can't go in doing that. You can possibly carry two-thirds of another person. Maybe you can carry another person. But you can't carry three other
2: persons because you'll have a hump and your back look like a hairpin. Don't you think you can be better defending democracy by upholding President Roosevelt, who was elected by the great majority of the American people? I don't
1: regard the forced New Deal as democracy. I think they're two very separate things. Therefore, if I should attack the Fourth New Deal, it's a sense that in my heart, I'm not attacking democracy. So far as President Roosevelt is concerned, it has been my policy and my practice ever since he started to run for office to defend him when I thought he was right, and I'll submit that nobody ever defended him any better, and to criticize him when I said he's wrong, and in my present position, I'll continue to do that until they put me in Alcatraz.
3: (laughs) Devoted his entire speech to the administration of uh, emergency powers in wartime. Are we to infer that the administration definitely anticipates
2: war? No. But I might take an umbrella to my office without anticipating that it rains.
5: <laughs> Nevertheless, rain was on the horizon. It was 1939 and the shadows of war were lengthening in Europe. Here at home, business was in a slump and unemployment was growing. The struggle between the New Deal and private enterprise continued with ever-increasing bitterness.
8: I should say that four-fifths of the businessmen, large and small, are against the present administration. It is hard to work together. It is hard to work together with someone who is unfriendly to you. And the truth is that the present administration, however it may talk of breathing spells and business appeasement, is not in the last analysis friendly to the growth and development of private enterprise. There are a great many individuals in the government in Washington who are entirely opposed to the profit system. Government is certainly not friendly to business when it goes into business itself, as in the TVA and many other enterprises in competition with existing businesses, for it is absolutely impossible for any individual business to compete successfully with the government. I would say that if business and government are to work together, the government must change the basic principles of its present policies or the people must change the government.
5: Never was there a stronger voice in the free enterprise system than Robert A. Taft of Ohio. Sharing the town meeting rostrum with him that night was Jerome Frank, chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission.
6: The question being asked tonight is whether such government men can cooperate with businessmen. Before proceeding, let me say that when I accepted the invitation to speak here tonight, I did not realize that I was to be on the program with an avowed and distinguished candidate for a presidential nomination. And one who has already begun his campaign for office, as you may have observed to see. I am a member of a non-political commission required by... (laughs) Is required by law to consist of not more than three members of the same political party, and two of my colleagues are Republicans. They are not new dealers. If we work together, it is because we are reasonable men and find it possible to do so. I shall confine myself to what I have from the first understood, and I thought that Senator Taft had understood, to be the question of the evening. Not the policies or wisdom of legislation, but the question, can government administrators and businessmen work together? I would bore you if I were merely to recite a complete list of the various agencies of the federal government constantly engaged in such cooperation. We in the SEC are engaged in the task of fortifying the American profit system in the interest of democracy. We, and enlightened, far-seeing businessmen, can have no other objective. Our aim is and must be this, a secure profit system under a secure democracy. And cooperation between government and business can achieve and is achieving that result, an indispensable result, if America is to avert the alternative disaster of chaos or tyranny.
5: Our town meeting documentary... Politics USA continues after this word from your announcer.
4: America's Town Meeting is presenting a documentary titled Politics USA with Will Rogers Jr. narrating. Town Hall recalls that his father on two occasions appeared on its morning lecture series, the most famous lecture platform in America. And in the Town Hall auditorium, a chair is dedicated in the memory of the beloved humorist. Tonight's program, like all town hall activities, is a part of a comprehensive program in the field of adult education, for which this institution was founded. Since 1894, originally as the League for Political Education, town hall has been a center for lectures and debates, projects in international understanding, short courses, and concerts. A town hall debut is the goal of young singers and musicians. Town hall, the busiest auditorium in America, is located in mid-Manhattan just off... Times Square. Now we return to America's Town Meeting and Will Rogers, Jr.
5: You are listening to the America's Town Meeting special entitled Politics USA. In another debate, Assistant Attorney General Robert H. Jackson stated the case for the government's role in supplying the needs of the people
7: business should get over thinking about men in public life as being different from themselves. There are dumb plays in government matched by some in business. (laughs) In fact, I don't know which brand of wisdom I distrust the most. (laughs) That of the theorists who have studied a business but never run one or that of the executives who have run a business but never studied it. Private enterprise in America today is in a situation where, chiefly, its own workers are its customers and its customers are its own workers. Unless it can keep the circle of goods and wages moving, then the government directly and brazenly must fill the gap in employment on one hand and the needs for goods on the other.
5: Following Mr. Jackson to the microphone came a big man with an unruly shock of hair and a robust voice. Do you remember?
1: For several years now, we have been listening to a bedtime story. <laughs> telling us that the men who hold office in Washington are by their very positions endowed with a special virtue, that they are men of far vision, of exceptional ability and capacity. Businessmen, on the other hand, particularly so-called big businessmen, are pictured as the ruthless dictators of sprawling industrial empires with no real ability except the talent for collecting money for themselves. (laughs) The main problem is to restore confidence Of investors in American business, and to do this will require more than pleasant speaking on the part of the government. For several years the government has taken definite action to show its hostility to business. It must now take definite action to demonstrate the sincerity of its desire to cooperate. The American people should be spared the confusion of hearing what one government official says in friendship, today denied by another in hostility tomorrow. Wow. At this critical point in our nation's history, it should seem fitting that business and government should bear in mind the warning which Abraham Lincoln gave to the two factions into which this country was dividing at the time of his first inaugural address. I am loath to close. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not
5: be enemies. I think. Yes, those were stormy years in American politics, and Wendell Wilkie was to play a leading part in the limelight of public opinion. Little dreaming of it that night in 1938, when he made his first network radio appearance on Town Meeting, Wendell Wilkie two years later. Was to be chosen as the GOP's presidential candidate.
1: I accept the nomination of the Republican Party for President of the State. I accept it in the spirit in which it was given at our convention at Philadelphia. Yeah. Spirit of dedication. I herewith dedicate myself with all my heart, with all my mind, and with all my soul to make this nation strong. I
7: propose that during the next
1: two and a half months, the president and I appear on public
3: platforms together in various parts of the world.
5: The election year, 1940, saw France fall to Nazi Germany. The Battle of Britain was joined. America started building new ships and planes. And President Roosevelt hit the campaign trail for a third time.
2: I still remember.
1: He is one of that great historic trio which has voted consistently against every measure for the relief of agriculture, Modern. Barn and
5: fish. <laughs> the voters returned FDR to office by a margin of five million votes.
3: Yesterday,
1: December seventh, nineteen forty one a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan.
5: Our nation was at war, and the political complexion of the early 40s was clouded with the all-out struggle for victory. But despite a tragic war, Americans by nature are always ready for a good political fracas. In 1944, Germany was raining buzz bombs on Britain, Allied troops invaded France, General MacArthur was leading the battles to recapture the Philippines, and on the home front, the big political issue was the fourth term. If we should
7: change presidents now, just when we're getting ready for the final punch in this global war, Such action, regardless of our real motive, would inevitably be interpreted among the nations of the world as a repudiation of President Roosevelt's leadership. This is not an honor that we seek to bestow on Mr. Roosevelt. It is a job, a terrible, life-taking job, but one that America in danger demands in the interest of her national security.
5: Those were the words of Congressman, now Senator... John Sparkman of Alabama, whose views were opposed by former Senator Edward Burke of Nebraska.
1: A fourth term for President Roosevelt, Congressman Sparkman, no, indeed. President Roosevelt should announce without delay that he is not seeking the nomination and will not accept it if offered. If he does attempt to perpetuate himself in office, he should be decisively defeated. Now, is a fourth term necessary because we have a war to win and a peace to make? Do not insult the intelligence. Do not insult the intelligence of 130 million American people by suggesting that in this great nation, one man has become indispensable.
5: The emotional tides of partisan feeling rolled on, and the New Deal platform fanned the fires of campaign debate between a tiring President Roosevelt and the Republican nominee, New York Governor Thomas E. Dewey. A week before the 1944 election, town meeting brought to its microphone Harold Ickes, speaking for the president, and Senator Homer Ferguson, campaigning for Governor Dewey. Secretary Ickes was his usual caustic self.
2: I hold in high regard the man who has espoused the hopeless cause tonight of Thomas E. Dewey. (laughs) candidate who seeks to lead his Trojan horse, filled with isolationists, into the White House. Governor Dewey is fortunate in having so able an advocate. He needs the best that there is. Governor Dewey's tinker-toy approach to foreign affairs is not only mischievous, it is positively dangerous. His adolescent playing with fire disqualifies him as a participant in peace negotiations. America could not afford to send to the peace table a man who had already aroused the mistrust of those with whom he must negotiate. I suggest that nothing so adequately portrays Mr. Dewey's conception of Mr. Dewey as the famous lines written by Rostan and Chanticleer. I fall back dazzled at beholding myself all rosy red, at having I myself caused the sun to rise. There's time for deeds and not for words. The Republican Party in 1920, my own party in that year, deliberately betrayed the American people on the same issue and in almost the same words as those of Governor Dewey this year. This is no time to be sending a child to market. As you know, American citizens do not like to be double-crossed. That is why, on November 7th, they will continue at the helm the pilot who led us through the darkness of the Depression, the Commander-in-Chief who is bringing us to victory on the battlefields, Franklin D. Roosevelt.
5: Then Michigan Senator Ferguson said,
1: Here, not over this great land, listening in tonight. You can measure the soundness of a national administration by three yardsticks. First, by the principles it preaches. Second, by the policy it practices. And third, by the people who are its agents and promoters. Mm -hmm. By any one of these three yardsticks, and by all of those three yardsticks, the Roosevelt administration is bankrupt. The man who wants to be president for 16 years told us only a few months ago that we would have to take his next four years sight unseen. He was not going to campaign in the usual sense, but my oh my, how times have changed. (laughs) In a big way, all of a sudden, they are all hitting the campaign trail. Why, look at my old friend, Mr. Icky's here. (laughs) You know he has a job. In fact, he has 38 jobs in the New Deal. He is secretary of the New Deal's interior. (laughs) When on November the 7th, American voters again vote, it will vote for a sound national administration. It will vote for opportunity in business and in labor, for honesty in government, and Dewey in the White House.
5: Political temperatures were high, and it was a rough-and-tumble campaign. Tom Dewey hit hard.
1: This is a campaign against an administration which was conceived in defeatism, which failed for eight straight years to restore our domestic economy, which has been the most wasteful, extravagant, and incompetent administration in the history of the nation, and worst of all, one which has lost faith in itself and in the American people.
5: FDR was never without a sharp reply.
1: These Republican leaders have not been content with attacks on me, or on my wife, or on my sons. No, not content with that. They now include my little dog, Bala.
5: The Democratic Party won that 1944 election by a plurality of three and a half million votes. President Roosevelt was to live out only a few months of his term, and Harry S. Truman took the oath of office on April 12, 1945. More highlights from town meetings' political debates after the following message.
4: Tonight's town meeting on the American political scene was edited from recordings of these debates from 1935 through the national elections of 1952. Town Hall will welcome your comments on this type of town meeting documentary. Let us know if you would like to hear more of them covering other subjects. The entire broadcast will be available at a later date as a record album, an historically valuable addition to your own record library. Further information will be sent upon request. Printed transcripts of the program can be obtained by sending 25 cents in coin to Town Meeting, New York 36, New York. And when you write, send along your own suggestions for future topics and speakers. For 21 years, Town Meeting has been a sounding board for public opinion. So let us have your ideas for discussions in the weeks ahead. Now, before rejoining America's Town Meeting, we pause for station identification.
5: Politics, USA, on town meeting. By 1948, the nation had made the transition from war to peace. On the political scene, there came a third-party movement headed by former Vice President Henry A. Wallace. His running mate was Senator Glenn Taylor, who said, In electing
1: Henry Wallace, the American people will serve notice on the world, and particularly Russia, that we have repudiated the war-makers and that we want peace. And in those changed circumstances, I am confident that Henry Wallace could bring an honorable end to the Cold War, make it possible for the Russians and ourselves to stop our imperialistic and expansionist tactics, secure a just and honorable peace for all concerned, and then proceed to rebuild the United Nations and bring about world disarmament.
5: Columnist Dorothy Thompson took violent exception to Senator Taylor's stand.
0: The support for this so-called liberal party is very strange. Not one of the great labor unions, including those who want a real American labor party, is backing it. Apart from the communist press, no outstanding left-wing newspaper supports the movement. Where are Mrs. Roosevelt, Harold Icke, Frank Graham, Ben Cohen, David Lilienthal, William O. Douglas, Robert Jackson or any of the old, prominent New Dealers, except Rex Tugwell. Gone, Senator Taylor. Gone with the wind. Mr. Wallace's foreign policy does not differ in a single important detail from the communists. We should get out of Europe. We should bring Europe into the Ruhr. We should let the communists take China. We should disarm, and then we should negotiate with the Russians. A bright idea, thank you.
5: Then Senator Taylor, in rebuttal... Uh,
1: Miss Thompson, uh... Taken the usual course of smearing the new party as red. I may say that Adolf Hitler uh, smeared everybody that disagreed with him uh, as being red. And they woke up one day and found out that they were enslaved by fascism. So Miss Thompson asks, where are the liberals? And she gives a long list of them and says they are gone with the wind. I can tell you where the liberals are, Miss Thompson. They are on the outside looking in, just like the Southern Democrats.
5: At this time, there were those who claimed that our two-party system was failing. Former California Congressman George Outland told town meeting listeners,
4: To the degree that a party thinks first only of winning and holding office, to the extent that it places power above policy and patronage above service, it is contributing to the breakdown of our two-party system. Political parties are not, or rather I should say, they should not be ends in themselves. They should be the means to the attaining of ends. When either the Republican or the Democratic Party considers itself an end and not the means for the achieving of broad social and economic goals desired by the American people, it is then contributing toward the failure of the two-party system.
5: Congressman Outland was answered by Goodwin J. Knight of California.
4: Thank you very much, Mr.
1: Outland. I have enjoyed listening to your very fervent New Deal speech, which I claim was your complete right to make here today. Apparently, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Alden believes that the two-party system was working successfully in 1932 when the people turned the Republicans out, but now feels that it is falling and failing since last year the people brought the Republicans back in. <laughs> Far from being a failure... Our system is today more vital and just as useful as at any time in our history. Ladies and gentlemen, the two-party system is a great voluntary institution. It is functioning in a world where the four freedoms have become a hollow mockery and tyrants and sawdust Caesars are still beating up little people all over the world because they dare to hope for the kind of freedom you and I enjoy.
5: On this issue, socialist leader Norman Thomas had a few words to say.
1: Under our Constitution and under our uh, set of customs, there's no question that this is and will have to be a two-party country. Never in my life did I run to create a third party. I ran in the hope of setting in motion uh, forces which would realign the party division. I fully agree that multiplicity of parties is not good, especially under the conditions in America. To a certain extent, it's a good thing, probably, that our parties are
6: coalitions rather than parties in the technical sense bound together by principle. That is to say, I do not think in a country like ours that you can have too rigid requirements of agreement in advance. But I do think you need principles to divide parties instead of
1: mere desire for office.
5: But the two major parties did have their troubles in 1948. The Democratic Party was divided among supporters of Henry Wallace's progressives, while Southerners opposed President Truman's stand on civil rights. Supporting Mr. Truman's candidacy was Senator Francis J. Myers of Pennsylvania.
1: But we need in the presidency today, above all else, a man who stands for those things which we who believed in and who loved Roosevelt consider most important to America. A man who stands for real and effective international cooperation against aggression and for peace and for full political and economic democracy. And President Truman is such a man.
5: But another Democrat, Governor Ben Laney of Arkansas, argued against the renomination of President Truman.
1: I oppose the nomination of President Truman. We do know where he stands. First, I submit that his work as an administrative and executive officer has been weak. Let me ask you, Senator Myers... What great questions have been settled since he became president? I recommend the nomination of any Democrat, tried, proved, capable, and willing to go all out to save America from the vicious infiltration and adoption of untried, tainted, discolored proposals designed to remake the American way of life. For these reasons, I oppose the nomination of President Truman.
5: The Republican field was wide open. Among the names we heard were those of Senator Taft, Harold Stassen, Arthur Vandenberg, Earl Warren, and nominee for the second time, Thomas E. Dewey.
4: In all
1: humility, I accept the nomination. I am happy to be able to say to you that I come to you unfettered by a single obligation or promise to any living person.
5: And Harry S. Truman genially whistle-stopped his way across the country in a style unique in presidential campaigning.
7: I'm Harry S. Truman. I work for the government and I'm trying to keep my job. We're out to win this election and we're going to do that on the
5: second day of November. (laughs) The pollster said he didn't have a chance. That long night in November 1948 is well remembered in the annals of American political history. Many people went to bed, and many newspapers went to bed, too, confident of a Republican victory. But the night wore on, and a sleepy nation learned a lesson in vote counting. Out in Missouri, the man from Independence had a good night's rest. I had my
7: sandwich and glass of buttermilk, and went to bed at 6.30. And along about 12 o'clock, I happened to wake up for some reason, (laughs) and and the radio was turned on, and Mr. Captain Barn was saying, while the President is a million votes ahead in the popular vote, we have yet to hear."
3: And we are very
7: sure that when the country vote comes in, Mr. Truman will be defeated by another party. And I went back to bed
6: and went to
5: sleep. (laughs) And while President Truman played the piano, time rolled on. On to another presidential campaign, that of 1952. Again, there were many hopefuls in each party. They and their spokesmen came to town meeting platforms.
1: I'm a candidate for the presidential nomination of the Democratic Party for these reasons. I want to lead the Democratic Party this fall in a vigorous fighting campaign which will make the record and program of our party clear to every voter.
6: The confidence in Congress and in the country in Bob's intelligence, indefatigable industry, and complete integrity is a priceless asset for the American people and the world in restoring confidence in government upon which alone an enduring structure of peace can be erected. And these are some of the reasons why in my judgment Bob Taft should and will be the next president of the United States. I stand for
1: a fighting campaign on all the issues. I have faith in expanding life in America, a great America. I believe we must bring to every citizen what is at stake at home and abroad, the prosperity of our people and leadership in the world for peace.
5: Finally, for the Democrats, All was settled in their convention.
2: I accept your nomination and your program. And now, my friends, that you have made your decision, I will fight to win that office with with all my heart and my soul.
5: The GOP convened at the height of an active battle for delegate support between Senator Taft and the citizen forces promoting the candidacy of Dwight D. Eisenhower.
1: The 25th convention of the Republican Party will now come to order.
0: It is with pride
1: that I place before this convention for President of the United States, the name of Dwight, David Eisenhower. You have summoned me on behalf of millions of your fellow Americans to lead a great crusade for freedom in America and freedom in the world. I know something of the solemn responsibility of leading a crusade. I have led one. I take up this task, therefore, in the spirit of deep obligation. Mindful of its burden and of its decisive importance, I accept
2: your summons. I will lead this crusade.
5: And as has been going on through all these years and in all these campaigns, the representatives of the two great parties met in town meeting for debate. This time, Mr. Walter Williams, chairman of the Citizens for Eisenhower, debated with Democratic Congressman Emanuel Seller.
7: I believe the American people have a, an increasing sense of urgency as to the need for the right kind of a decision this fall And that decision, in my opinion, will be the election of Dwight D. Eisenhower.
1: I admit the Republicans are very much troubled with the repeated victories of the Democrats, but not the people of the United States. With our liberal platform and Governor Stevenson's outstanding qualities of leadership, we cannot miss. There are 22 million diehard Democrats in this land. There are 18 million diehard Republicans. That gives us an edge immediately of four million, and where are the 1,100,000 voters who voted for Wallace going? Are they going to the reactionary Republican palace guard that surrounds uh, General Eisenhower, like McCarthy, who addressed the convention, and Kim, and Watkins, and Kane and men of that stamp, and character? Why, that general will be fenced in by those men. (laughs)
7: There are a good many things that I'd like to say by way of reply to Mr. Sellers' remarks in the first place concerning his last statement about Mr. Eisenhower being fenced in. He just isn't the kind of a guy that gets fenced in, and I'd like to have that on the record.
5: And when the ballots were counted, General Eisenhower was victorious by six and a half million votes. And the Republican Party had returned to power for the first time in 20 years.
8: Wherever I am,
1: I will end each day thinking of millions of American homes, large and small, of fathers and mothers working and sacrificing to make sure that their children are well cared for, free from fear, full of good hope for the future, proud citizens of a country that will stand among the nations as a leader of a peaceful and prosperous world.
5: In this hour, we have covered a span of 20 years on the American political scene. We've been reminded of some of the great events, once argued from the village street corner to the very White House itself. And through these years, no matter how burning the issue or how oratorical or soft-spoken the speaker, no matter how quietly attentive or how violently demonstrative the audience, it seems that one fact comes through. Difficult as our problems may appear, each of us can share in their solution by bringing them out to the light for all to see through honest and free exchange of opinion in open meeting. Fortunately for us, that's the way it is with Politics USA.
4: Copies of tonight's documentary can be obtained by sending 25 cents in coin to Town Meeting, New York 36, New York. The program also will be available as a record album, and we will be glad to send you further information. Town meeting next week originates for the Teachers Association at Chappaqua, New York. Congressman Carol D. Carnes of Pennsylvania, Henry J. Toy, Jr., and Robert E. Bell will discuss the question, how can we improve public schools? Two weeks from tonight, town meeting will be in Akron, Ohio, for the Akron Civic Forum. The subject will be, is the government controlled by big business? We welcome your questions on our topics. A 20-volume set of the American People's Encyclopedia is awarded each week to the listener who submits the most interesting question. Send us yours on the subjects How Can We Improve Public Schools? and Is the Government Controlled by Big Business? Mail your questions to Town Meeting, New York 36, New York. Join us next week and every week for America's Town Meeting. Town
1: Meeting tonight Town Meeting tonight
4: This town meeting on Politics USA was produced and edited by William R. Traum. Editorial supervision, Harriet C. Hallsband. Directed for ABC by Richard Ritter. Recording engineer, Phil Pollard. Bob Finnegan speaking. This program came to you transcribed from New York.